Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Lions TV, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the latest podcast episode of Lions Lounge Lockdown 18 with Kenny Cunningham. It is part one, and that's why you can hear my voice, because obviously this isn't on YouTube, so you can't see... The, uh, the banner I put up at the end of the first show on YouTube saying this is to be continued. So I'm letting you know in person that this is to be continued. Kenny, absolute legend. What a top man. He was worried. He said that um, he wouldn't be able to do an hour. He wouldn't remember enough about his time at the club. In fact, we spoke for, I think, four hours. So um, part one is an hour and seven, eight minutes long, depending on how long I talk to you for. And part two will be out next week. I expect that to be an hour and a half long, as long as the Richard Sadler episode, which is currently the longest ever. Lions Lounge Lockdown. Thanks for listening to these podcasts. If you do get a chance, please leave a five-star review if you think it deserves it. And uh, a little um, a little comment on the podcast app if you're listening to it on Apple. We're trying to get on Spotify as well, so bear with us. I'm not really a podcast kind of guy, but uh, the fans called for it. And so I've made the dream come true. Well, not the dream, but hopefully this will get you through your morning run. Uh, your evening, your missus trying to get in your ear roll and you just nod your head and you got me in your ear instead, me and Kenny Cunningham. So thanks for listening. I'm going to shut the fuck up now. Kenny Cunningham, part one, part two out next week. Enjoy. We're going to go in three, two, one. Lions Lounge Lockdown, episode 18. Kenny Cunningham, thanks for joining us, mate. How are you, Ken? Yeah, all good. All good, Dan. We just, had a, we just had quite a lengthy chat off camera. If we got didn't, didn't press record, we was well away there, mate, weren't we? Yeah, yeah, it all comes flooding back. Uh, yeah, no, it's good. I don't get an opportunity, in all honesty, to reminisce too much, generally uh, speaking, but certainly not uh, in the Millwall days. Obviously, it would have been the first club uh, back in the dim and distance. So, no, I wouldn't have had too many opportunities over the last couple of years to be uh, uh, chilling the fat, as they say. Well, mate, as I said to you before, the fans were very excited you're coming on. Many say, I'm almost everyone. Is number 18? I'm 18 on the list. Is that what you said? 
Yeah, number 18, yeah. Thanks, I'm under the hour race. I, said, I wasn't, it wasn't, didn't even make the top 10, not even close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but oh. you know what it was? We need to start with the 90s, mate. We've done, we've done the noughties first, and now we've stepped back into the 90s. But, um, oh, was that it? Just logistically? Yeah. Well, well, look at this way, mate. This is going to be the last one before the football season starts again, so we'll save the best till last. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, you joined the club in 1989 till 1994. Um, a young Irish boy comes over from Tolka Rovers, if I'm not mistaken. Close enough, Dan. I'll give it out. Yeah. How does um how does that come about, Millwall especially? Yeah, it was a long story. I'd, I'd, I'd like to say I was spotted by the chief scout in Dublin. He only saw me play for ten minutes and thought this lad's special. We got to have him before the likes of Tottenham and Arsenal jump in and get him. But clearly, <laughs> clearly that wasn't the case. It was a very long, drawn-out process. It was the longest ever trial. It lasted about two years. <laughs> <laughs> and even then, I only got a one-year contract and about 40 quid a week in my pocket at the end of it. But um, no, it was, I was lucky, really, Dan. There was, um, I was recommended to Bob Pearson, who was Millwall's chief scout, um, by my manager in Dublin. Don't ask me how he had the contact. And over a long period of time, uh, I travelled over, played a number of games for the U team, actually illegally, if the truth be known. <laughs> I used to be, I used to, I used to finish school in Dublin uh, on a Friday afternoon. I, my dad used to drive me up to the airport, uh, smuggle me on a on a flight to London. He used to be picked up by uh, Bob, uh, Bob Pearson. I thought that was legal juvenile. I would have been under eighteen at the time, but Bob used to pick me up, take me back home. He used to stay the night with him and his wife uh, Friday evening. And play me a uh, youth team football game. What was the youth uh, the league called at the time? What was the name of it? It was a great, it was a very strong league. And um, the way it was structured at the time, all the top London clubs uh, were in there. Was it so the South East Counties? South East Counties, that was it. Yeah, of course it was. So I'd roll out, play a South East Counties game on a Saturday morning, 11 o'clock kickoff. Uh, scoot back to the den if we had a home game. Uh, for three o'clock and be on a flight back to Dublin uh, six six o'clock uh, in the evening to play me schoolboy football in Dublin on the Sunday morning. Now that wasn't every week, don't get me wrong, but as much as I could, now that was strictly illegal. Shouldn't really have happened, but there was there was no way there was no way around that. I literally needed to kind of you know impress, and the best way to do that would have been in that in that southeast counties league because it was very good, some very good players. It was very strong, and it was a huge step up for me. I mean, some good players in Dublin schoolboy football is was strong and is very strong, but there was an obvious uh, uh, difference, step up in terms of quality, and it was tough. So it was a bit of an indicator for them in terms of could I cut the mustard. So clearly they weren't convinced initially, <laughs> and continued to roll me and continued to roll me over. I actually broke a wrist, funny enough as well, on one of the trials. Went up to uh, John Dockley actually was the first time he came up to see me play. I think Bob had had a look at me a few times and decided maybe this kid's got something to offer. And obviously, he knocked on John Doc's door and said, look, you need to have a look at this kid. He probably would have had the final say down in terms where they got me. So I remember I flew into Luton Airport, maybe wait to Luton Dunstable for a... It would have been youth game as well, actually. And John Doc turned up. So this was the big thing. I was told that John Doc was coming up to... So that was panic station straight. I wasn't a, I wasn't the most confident kids to begin with. <laughs> so that was the last thing I needed to be told. The first team managers come to see me play. Anyway, I probably played a, a part. I, I fell out, tripped over my heels and about 10 minutes in and went down my wrist, broke my wrist. Oh, no. Yeah, ambulance straight to the hospital. Well, fair play, John Doherty, his wife actually, and Bob came into, me hospital room, <laughs> came into the hospital room that night. 
I don't know if it had been, been operating on, I was being operating on the following morning. And actually, it was nice. They came in and said, look, don't think this is the end of it. Get yourself ready. There'll be another opportunity when you come back. So that was nice. It was a nice touch, actually. Yeah. Remember, it would have been very easy for the manager to go, John Doc to go home and maybe just allow Bob to pop his head in and whatever. But the fact he went out of his way, and I was, you know, 17 years of age, scally like, you know what I mean? But the fact he went out of his way and came actually meant a lot, uh, to be honest. So I got myself back to Dublin, got myself fit, went through the process again. Eventually, uh, long story short, uh, yeah, Bob broke the news that Millwall would be offering me a one year contract. And that was, like you said, and that was the summer of. 89. I didn't come over actually to August, before second week of August when I actually came over to the football club, so I missed most of the pre-season, but I wouldn't say it was a bit of a jolly. I was obviously very, you know, very proud, uh, mm. but I deferred all the, so I'd, I'd applied for a few colleges in Dublin, to be honest with you, I just deferred them for a year, because in the back of my mind I was thinking, look, it's a year's experience, go over, give it a lash, but come, if you come back, I'll have me college there. And I can play a bit of League of Ireland football in Dublin. So I wasn't allowing myself to kind of hope really that there would be a career there for me. I kind of almost in the back of me, in the back, even the front of me might think, listen, it's only a year, you know, just enjoy it. Get yourself back home at the end of it. You know, you'll be better for the experience. That was really it. How did it come around? You know, you must have been a good player. Was there other interest from other clubs? Was your, was, your, was your youth and what was your youth uh, coach saying to you? How does how does he describe Millwall to you as a club? He, <laughs> <laughs> a boy from boy from Dublin going over to London. What did he say Millwall was all about? Did he tell you? No, we didn't. Well, there's been a small connection there, Dan, because we had a couple of um, uh, Eamon Dunphy would have been the, one of, probably the first famous Irish player. Would he went over and established mm. a reputation at the football club? And obviously, Cass had come in at that time as well, didn't he? Signed from Gillingham. And probably, I'm thinking if Cass had a broken, he would have done, he, just, he was playing in the Ireland team at that, uh, at that point. He just broke into the Irish international uh, setup. So Cass would have had a bit of profile. Kevin O'Callaghan there as well. Yeah. Would have had a couple of caps as well. Although, to be fair, Kevin O'Callaghan never spoke for about six months. And I saw <laughs> <laughs> he was one of those few players. I mean, a lot of the older uh, pros frightened me at the football club, but Kevin O'Callaghan, my God. If I was walking, if I saw him in the car park and I was walking, I'd literally die behind the car. <laughs> because Kevin made a hard few. He was a typical old pro at the time. No badness uh, to the largest end, Dan, but mm-hmm. young pro, like, I mean, you'd get this, you get the scowl off him, like, you know what I mean? And who are you, like, who the hell are you looking at? Are you looking at my, you know, so you, <laughs> you got a little bit of that boy off him. Not in a bad way, like you said, but I wasn't the most confident. So even Kevin, or his international, you know, you think, oh, he's an artist. You know, he has a kicky calf. He'll make an effort. He'll come over. Come on, lad, let's go and get a bit of lunch. Yeah, let's go down to the breakfast forever. No, nothing, nothing whatsoever. Cass was a little bit better, to be honest with you. I literally, I don't think those lads even heard my voice. Honestly, for the first six months of the football club, I mean, talk about keeping a low profile. I mean, I literally just head down, used to come in, do me training and do whatever I could and get out of there, you know. And it wasn't because it was a great environment and it was a great, they were a great bunch of players. But the age distance wasn't just the age, Dan. You had the likes of uh, Alan McClear. I can picture that team now that I went, not the team that I went in, but the team that was there is established. Brian Horn in goal. I can see them uh, on the cold blow line coming out, being in formation. Keith Stevens, Woody, Alan McClear, the Ian Dawes had just come to the football club. Les Broyley, Terry Horlock, you'll know them all. Jimmy Carter on the wing. I'm not sure, sure Paul Stevens had arrived that first year. He might have come the second year. And then, of course, Cass and uh, uh, Teddy up front. And obviously, a sprinkling of people around it. But that was the 
that was the team, and that was a battle hard. They were kind of mid, late 20s, a lot of those lads. Like, although I was 18, you think, that's not a massive jump there in terms of age. In terms of mentality and maturity levels, I would have been a very young uh, 18-year-old coming out of Dublin. You know, I wasn't like the street fortune, you know, outpound the streets of Dublin at 14 years of age like that. So, you know, that wasn't happening <laughs> to me at all, like, you know. Um, so, I, you know, I would have been very much school, home, school, work, training, football, and that was it. So to be thrown in there was a big, it was a totally different environment for me. And I probably took a step back for, for a significant period of time. I didn't really throw myself into it, Dan. It was kind of, wow, this is amazing. These lads, these players. But there wasn't a, there wasn't a real connection there. It was only for the, thankfully, for the likes of uh, John Goodman signed mm. very quickly after I came to the football club. But he kind of hit it off with a bit, bit in common. And the likes of Davy Thompson. Davy Thompson was a great lad. Kind of went out his way. A very funny lad. Alan Dowson, Sean Spardham, players like that. A couple of years, they kind of bridged the gap a little bit between me mm-hmm. and those lads, kind of mid to late twenties, and they kind of they made things a bit easier for me. It made it easier for me to settle in. Yeah, you walked straight into. As I said, I remember you. I must have been about ten, sort of nineteen ninety. So I remember my dad saying, "You know, we've got this young Irish kid," and you just looked so much younger than the rest of the squad. They was all, as you said, seasoned pros, come through the divisions. A lot of them. And how, I was going to ask you that was in my notes. How difficult was that? To sort of, was you in digs originally, and was you just, you know, was it struggle hard to make friends and just sort of get get involved with the boys because that could be a massive part for a young young Irish boy away from home. Uh, you're right, but it's probably a good thing I didn't get involved. <laughs> I didn't get involved <laughs> too much because it would have been a lively enough little social uh, side of things there, even for the younger pros. Mm. And like I said, I, I was a little, even back in Dublin, that really wasn't my thing, Dan. Even in growing up, so. Yeah, so I would have been like very boring. Like, so I would have been training, stay around the training, and do as much as I could, get the trains. I was in West Norwich for my first year. So that was a bit of, that wasn't easy getting back out there after training. But weekends would have been keeping me head down. I was very lucky, Dan. I had a young lad from Dublin now with me for six months. Mark Madden, you, you wouldn't remember. They gave him a six-month contract to come over. More of a trial period. Now, they didn't take him on, but he was in digs with me. We were in a little box room together, both for single beds for six months. So that did made things a lot easier. And there was a couple of other lads there as well, actually, white, white TSs, because uh, the landladies used to take maybe three or four at the time. So there'd be a couple of lads sprinkled in the digs as well. Mm. So that was enough, uh, Dan, to be all honest with you. I'd go down the off-lights the weekend, get a few sweets in and a few videos, Blockbuster. Blockbuster's best customer I was. Like, I think I was a gold card member there, the amount of money I used to spend. But literally, um, that was it. That was literally it for me. For, from, from a social point of view, like I said, that was enough. And those younger lads are training, the Davy Thompsons, and just just enough little interaction there. Steve Torpy actually was another lad. He was there in the U team. Darren Tracy, Phil Babb, funny enough, was in the team as well. Phil went on, had a great career. As did Steve, actually, on the, in the lower leagues, but had a fine career as well. So there was just enough contact there, just to make me feel as if you know, part of it to a to a small extent, like you know what I mean. But but the football, the the, the big shock as well was the football side of things. Because you, you wouldn't know that. I mean, I never, I played, uh, when I came, I played right back. They pushed me into right back because I couldn't play centre half. I was a centre half. Played all my career centre half in Dublin. But I was like 10 and a half stone and like, you know, ne- never seen the inside of the gym before I came over to Millwall. Nobody's strength. Technically, actually, I wasn't very good at all, uh, Dan. It's, it, it's amazing, really. Like, I made a jump. You mentioned about that I stand out in Dublin. There's a simple question. Answer is I didn't. I didn't stand out at all. I was very fortunate. If you're asking, like, the top 20, uh, best players around Ireland at that time in my year. I, I wouldn't even have got a, a mention, so I was very fortunate. But 
but it, I always pushed him to right back because physically I couldn't cope at centre half. So I actually had to land the position at right back. And they might say, also, what's the difference in defence? But there is the significant difference positional mm. centre, particularly playing right back to centre half. So I had to learn that. And even kind of add a big uh, part to the game in terms of it as an attacker going forward. Because the years I was at Millwall, I, I probably gained a small bit of a reputation in terms of actually getting forward and maybe getting crosses into the box, that type of thing, Dan. Yeah. But, but I never, I literally, anybody who saw me playing Dublin as a, as, a, as a kid would say, that lad never stepped over the halfway line. Now, I literally never stepped over the halfway line playing the centre. I didn't know I was a natural defender. I loved me defending. And I wasn't, technically, I wasn't very good. I wasn't very comfortable on the ball, even dribbling with the ball. Dan, so I, I had no business the opposition's half the pitch. Literally, I'd never set foot. <laughs> oh, so you must, have, you must have had something special. You're, you're, not, you're not really selling yourself, but you must have had something in there. This is what I'm saying. So, but at least I had, a, I had the, not the forest side. I, very quickly, I knew well, I have to land this position, this right back. I've got to make myself a better defender. I've got to get physically, I've got to improve. I've got myself physically stronger. I've got to get more proficient on the ball technically. I've got to spend more time on the ball. My head needs to improve, lots of things. But also getting forward, I, I know I had to get forward in from a right back position. It's not like it is today, you know, full backs are invariably they're, you know, the converted wingers and their positions 20 yards from the pitch. They're expected to do that. Back in the day, you were a right back at the defend, but you're expected to get forward and support your winger, get beyond them and make a contribution in the last tour of the pitch. So that's what I had to do. I had to try to develop that and add that to my game. So from a football, so from a mature point of view, development, I, I was I needed to step up. But from a footballing point of view, I had to make big strides in that first year because I knew as if there probably wouldn't be another contract there for me. I need to make I needed to make big improvements uh, in a very short period of time. It was we said an iconic Millwall side that had been promoted, but we was obviously in the second season on a way to relegation. So. It's difficult to make your mark, I suppose, in a side that's struggling, especially with them season pros. And who was, would, would it have been Reinhardt right back? Was you sort of, I know you didn't make your debut straight away, was he sort of thinking, hang on, who's this little prick? I didn't have to worry about me. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have to worry about the size of me, like Reinhardt picked me up with uh, one hand. And the type of player that Reinhardt was, he was legend when his fans loved him. You now physically aggressive. You now he was like steaming into those tackles. He would have got the whole prep crowd up. They absolutely loved him. That type of player, didn't they? Traditionally, there was a lot of those players, wasn't there, in Millwall's history. And he was of that ilk and he was loved because of it. But I was a, I was the, I was the total opposite for the, for the reasons that I said. I was like a little ballerina compared <laughs> to my right back. So he had nothing to worry about. So so that first year, you're right, obviously we got relegated. I was probably the kiss of death, to be honest with you. That wasn't my only relegation uh, in my career. And it hurt everybody. It hurt those older lads in particular, Dan, because they were like, they'd worked so hard to get there. And a number of them probably knew they probably wouldn't get an opportunity to get back there. Mm. It was slightly different for me. I was 18. You know, you don't think too far ahead. I've been lucky enough. I made a few, I made, I think it was five appearances for the end of the season. Bob threw me and got the job and gave me a couple of games. And that was absolutely amazing. We played Spurs. Sorry, was that the 5-0 game, Spurs at home? I bet it's 5-0. That might have been the season before. <laughs> I didn't think it was 5 honestly. I think they won. Gascoigne played in Lineker. That was massive for me because the year before I was watching these on TV and stuff. And I remember trying to get close to Gascoigne a couple of times thinking, yeah, I'll try and yeah, you know, get touch tight and make, you know, make things difficult. And like, I'm wet. I, I, the first time he caught me with his elbow in the face, I was literally like, I didn't realise what had happened. I, so, so you're naive. I went back again two minutes later for a little bit. Yeah, I'll try and get, maybe take the ball out, blah, blah, blah. Worse, because Gascoigne was notorious for using his upper body. He was very clever, as good as he was. He had good upper body strength. If you, if you came within him, close to 
you'd get one of them. So everybody knew, apart from me, obviously being uh, new on the block. So I remember getting a couple, a couple of them, a couple of bloody noses off him. I remember Kerry Dixon playing against us for Chelsea. He might have got a hat-trick. I wonder if that was the game, Dan. Chelsea beat as well, I think, towards the end of the season. He got a hat-trick. He was a lovely player, Kerry Dixon. So it was mixed emotions. Yes, I was mm. disappointed. I went on the Premiership. But it didn't hurt as much. I didn't realise it at the time. I realised it later, Dan, because I would have been in that position and be told he's getting relegated. I know how it felt then. But it was a different... Yes, it kind of hurt, but it didn't hurt. They didn't cut as deep as it would have done with those older lads. So... I was lucky enough, there was another year, maybe two years, I can't remember, at the end of it. So for me, it was a case of, well, learn from the experience. I've got a new contract and keep trying to develop and getting uh, better going forward and try and get, obviously, maybe a few more appearances, which wasn't going to be easy. But the good thing about Rhino was, because I knew the type of player that he was, I knew I just had to be patient. You knew he was good for at least kind of at least six, eight games to spend. <laughs> it was a given. It was a given. So I was thinking, uh, by November, he'll have 10 yellow cards. That was an absolute certainty. So that was a two-game suspension. I knew the odds are he would have at least one red card by November. So I used to factor him by Christmas. I'd have about four or five games. Absolute minimum. And then would rack up again second half of the season. More suspensions for him. So that was, a, that was literally it for the first couple of years. But I got lucky. Eventually, Ryan went in centre-half. Kind of maybe lost his legs a little bit. But he more experienced he became. He was a good defender, Ryan, a good organiser. I think it was Bruce Rhea probably eventually would have put him inside alongside Colin Cooper to come yeah. to the football. Opened a bit of his space there. So that's when I began to get a little bit more of an opportunity in a few more games. Mm-hmm. Uh, belts. But that was the only reason. Ryan had to be playing right, but I never would have got in. We <laughs> say so you didn't make your debut for six months, I think it was. You made your debut against Norwich in a 1-1 draw. As you mentioned there, John Doherty lost his job um, and Bob Pearson took over. You said, which was good for you. Bob Pearson was the man that scouted you, obviously. Um, and that's, that's when you got your chance. You remember making your debut? I don't remember much of the game. I remember the, in being in the hotel probably a couple of hours before as you do. You're leaving the hotel pre-match for me and then you come together for a bit of a team meeting before you get on the coach and head to the ground maybe two hours before the uh, kick-off. I was in the squad and I've been in the squad a few times before. You know, 18 man, just a bit of experience, that type of thing. And you're right, Bob had got a, a job. But I didn't have any, didn't give me any indication that he was famous. So he named the team. And I think it was Dennis Salmon, I think, had been playing previously. Mm. And he said he's Brian, he would have gone Brian Hart. I would have been listening obviously, I would have been interested. And uh, right back, uh, Kenny, Kenny Cunningham. Honest to God, Dan. Stomach just, just dropped. Everything just dropped there. My chicken and beans, everything onto the floor. So my face probably didn't betray it. I might have done, I might have gone white. But the lads obviously weren't looking nobody but literally I do remember that sensation and I kind of held it together Dan I got on the coach a couple of the lads would have given me a little nod maybe probably not making too big a deal of it probably the right thing to uh, to do and I got on the coach my head was spinning oh, absolutely spinning panic mode to be honest with you it really was and when we got to about a couple of minutes from the ground we came over a bridge and you could actually see down to the stadium and there's a lot of streets and people meandering, all the supporters making their way down to the ground. So you got a really broad outlook at the whole thing and how big the occasion was. <sighs> Honest to God, sweating, Dan, proper. Like, I literally do remember having to kind of, you know, you have those internal kind of conversations, just, just calm down, calm down, just take a few breaths. So it was a real battle. And I got through it. I'd say it was about, I vaguely remember this because I used to end up running for the South London Press, used to do the report on the games. Yeah, because I always run. I got into the habit of running because it was a big thing. So I used to mark people, 
hour was hour five, was it? I think hour five wasn't hour ten. They used to mark people hour five. And uh, I remember running to get the sound on the press after the game. But I, I was literally, it was, a, it was a kind of a six out of ten performance at best. Dan. I didn't make too many massive errors, but didn't make a huge contribution. Re, re, constant battle with the nerve, but kind of got through it. And it was yeah. great. I couldn't believe it. It was an amazing feeling. I think we drew one all. I think we possibly got a draw or nil all. Yeah, it was like one that. Yeah. yeah, but it was, but that, that was the overriding feeling. I know you get people talking about their debuts. Oh, you, was more, you was more interested in getting a seven than the result. You just wanted that seven in the South London press, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, honest to God. But it was, yeah, that was kind of a, you miss, of course you missed those emotions. At the time you're thinking, oh, this is horrible and stuff. But again, you know, in hindsight you think back and you think, oh, to have those type of uh, feelings again. Didn't have that too. I had a couple of times later, a little bit later in my career, sim- similar emotions, make me international uh, debut maybe there was a little bit of that I was a little bit older at, at, at the time but yeah but that, that moment there was like, was huge for me and then how long did it take before you sort of you say at first you was in digs in Norwood and the, the first teamers weren't really having you at what point did you feel like yeah I was sort of starting to belong here now um, did, did you live in a situation change were you still in digs or Saf, I needed to go Saf for the river that's where it all came good for me <laughs> Yeah, I came over to Diggs in the Sid Cup, and that was it. I stayed there for a long period of time. We just speak about it before mm-hmm. uh, uh, I came on board. So came, came, went to Diggs there, very close to our training ground in uh, New Wells. I don't know if you remember that, Danny, forever down there. We trained back-to-back with Charlton, yeah. uh, just off, not too far from Melton Hoist. It was a lovely little training ground by the road there. I really, I really enjoyed it. I mean, the facilities weren't great, don't get me wrong, but the pitches were kind of decent enough. It was handy. Uh, to where I was in digs then. So I thought that's where I kind of settled down. Started getting a few more games under my belt. Bruce Riak, of course, had come in that second season. It was the second season, wasn't it, Dan? Was, uh, yeah, comes in second season. Um, and we have a good season. Nearly go straight back to the top flight. Good side he was Randrew at that point as well. Really good, some really good players. Yeah, it was. Two years, I think, he stayed, Bruce. And I played a few more games. It wasn't a regular, but came in. And more players came in. I think this there's Scottish Brigade came in there, didn't they? John McGinley, you mentioned John McGlashan, who was a great lad. Mm. I mean, I kind of got on well uh, with John. Colin Cooper came in, was a very good player. Uh, Bruce mm. made uh, uh, captain. So, yeah, in terms of personnel, there was a big turnover. I think Terry stayed, didn't he? A number of players would have stayed. I think Terry stayed for a, a couple of years, did he? Because I remember the day, do you know yeah. what? Because my memory wouldn't be great down, but I remember the day Terry left. And I think Mick, I think Mick would have been the manager by then. And I was in early. I used to come in reasonably early because, like I said, like uh, uh, I would have got in and done me a few bits and even after training, tried to do as much as, as much as I could. I can't remember. It was early in the morning or it was late in the afternoon. Most of the lads had gone. Mick pulled Teddy, called Teddy into his room. And as he came out of Mick's room, I was just walking to the main area. There wasn't, I don't think there was anybody there. And I'd literally never seen that because Teddy would have been bit of a kind of lovely fella, Terry, when you got to know him. They get to know him that well, but a very nice fella. But you know what he was like? He had this kind of presence about him. Like, he had a bit, a bit of a scowl on his face as well. He wasn't a smiler, Terry. Like, <laughs> 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 he wouldn't have got around that permanent smile. A bit like Kevin McGallan, like that, that crew. Like, all day. So you've got to keep your distance a little bit. Although he was very good, Terry. I, I got to uh, like him a lot by the time he left. But Terry came out of Mick's room and it actually jolted me. He actually jumped. He kind of jumped in the air and he had this massive uh, smile on his face. And Mick had obviously just given the news that Rangers had made a bid, had been accepted by the club, and he was free to go and talk to them. 
yeah, and I'd never seen that Terry, that type of reaction from him. I'm sure it was when Mick was the manager and he was gone, of course. He went and got stuff. He was gone. He, he was up the road. Because I, I used to think Terry left very quickly after that. The likes of Les Broly and number of the lads would have kind of moved on off the back of that relegation, Dan. But Terry actually stayed around. Yeah, because funny enough, when he came back, he came back to the club at the time. And boy, Jesus, we had... Because I've done a bit of... I used, I've been doing a bit of TV work the last few years, on and off. I got talking to Brian Little over in Dublin once. He was doing a bit of work over there as well. Nice fellow, Brian. And he was asking the Villa manager, uh, was asking, no, Leicester manager at the time. And he said to me once, he said, can you play, did you play Millwall? I said, yeah, that's right. He said, a couple of uh, years, Brian. He said, yeah, I brought me Leicester team down there one, one year. He said, I said, did you? I said, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't remember. I said, my memory would be the best. He said, well, you must remember that game. Uh, they knew then. I said, no, any reason why I'd remember it? And he went, I'll give you one reason. You know, first reason was like the first sending off, which was about, uh, I think it was about 10 minutes in, Terry. Terry went down the tunnel. And of course, then we had like, we had Pat Vanden uh, Pat Vanden Hell. Yeah, yeah. With Gavin McGuire in the squad at the time. And those three lads. Oh, God. Having those three lads on the pitch, it was, it was, I mean, Terry was, Teddy was hard as there was. Don't get me wrong, but he, but, but he could be quite quite an introverted off the pitch. Mm. Uh, Teddy Pat was like different type of physically. He was different, quite lean, a bit of a uh, you know catwalk freak. Well, a good looking lad. Pat yeah, was. He was yeah. In, I put a picture of him up the other day on social media actually because we've had some good stories on him and people thought it was Jamie Ridnap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good looking, good dresser. You know that type of fella. We wouldn't have been in the same circle. Put it that way. But yeah. <laughs> I had those had those mad eyes, absolutely, you know, kill you, absolutely, kill you, love you, love you. And then Gavin, and then Gavin and Gavin was like probably a bit of both of them. Gavin was like, Gavin was mad. Gavin was absolutely mad. And so I had this three of them at the football club at the same time. But that particular day, Terry went off, Pat went off, forced the second half as well. They had a player sent off. They had someone sent off. It shouldn't have been sent off. It was a mad game. It was about six goals in that in the whole game. And Brian went through it. Going in chronic, uh, chronological order, I couldn't remember any of it. All these things that <laughs> he went through it, and eventually said, "You remember it now?" I said, "You know what, Brian?" I said, "I do." Yeah, it was mad. That was a mad game, but that would coincide with Terry's return. You're right. Yeah, uh, yeah. To the football club, but he's obviously a different person. He had his career up and range, and he'd done great up there. And he hadn't um, obviously maybe a small drop off mm. when he came back to the football, but he was loved. Uh, uh, Terry, what the fans absolutely loved him. But we were playing a different. Probably a different time, maybe a different type of style of play then as well, because Mick was in the chair there at the moment. and mm. It was a little bit different, a little bit functional when I first went to the football club. John Doc was there 4-4-2, and I don't mean functional in a derogatory uh, point of view. Let's take you back, before we get on to, to Mick McCarthy as, as a as a manager, obviously Big Mick was signed by Bruce Rioch. Um yeah. He must have been a bit. He must have been like a bit of a legendary player as well for you to come into the club. He must have been a bit like, fucking it's Mick McCarthy. Because he captained... He captained the uh, Republic of Ireland in 1990, uh, USA, USA yeah. 94, wasn't it? It was That's right. And Italian 90. Yeah, massively so. Yeah, Mick was huge, huge uh, profile in Ireland at the time. He might have just finished playing for Ireland maybe a couple of years at that stage. Because he was literally, Mick would have been 34, 35 then at least. Dan, he was literally, his legs were gone. But kind of Bruce brought him back and put him, kind of moulded the team around him. He, he, we played a back five, Mick played the middle of a three. Which was okay because I actually played to the right. I've actually played a wing back and played right side of him. And Mick was good. He was a good organizer. 
you know, good information, which was good for me, obviously, young player developing and learning, uh, learning the game. And he needed a bit of legs around. Now, I wasn't ridiculously quick, but I was mobile enough, like, so it kind of suited Mick to have a couple of legs around him. But he didn't play much. He only played a few games towards the end of the season. And then he finished, Dan, didn't he? And then that coincided with Bruce uh, leaving the football club. And Mick was obviously uh, offered the job, wasn't he? So... Mm. Fortunate for me because it was the first time Mick got the job. He, that was his first pre-season, and very early in the pre-season, uh, Dan, it might have been even a, a pre-season game. Uh, maybe it was even training. The first time we put an eleven v eleven on in training, and you always kind of knew, you know, the eleven v eleven came out in training, maybe two three weeks into pre-season, and he kind of you, you kind of put the team out. You thought, right, that's the bones of the team. He's thinking kind of going forward. You know, it might change here and there. But the first time he took out the jersey, he gave me the, the number two jersey, he gave me the right back jersey. And I looked around, it was pretty much the kind of first team. And that kind of gave me a lot of confidence. Without saying a lot, that was kind of him probably telling me, well, you're, you're my man. And that's the yeah, first yeah. time that had happened. Although I played a few games under Bruce, so it never felt as if he was like, well, you're my number one, you know, which was fair enough. I'm not, I wasn't the perfect player then, I was still developing and improving. So I'm not saying it was the wrong decision by Bruce, but it was the. It was the first time something the manager gave me the jersey basically so you're my man, it's yours, you know, keep promise mm. at that level and you're gonna stay in the team. So that gave me a little bit bit of a shot of confidence, which was good, which I probably needed. Let's talk about Bruce. Say so Doc gets sacked, uh, Bob Pearson comes in temporarily, Bruce comes in. First season it went very well. What was he like as a manager? I've heard, I've heard mixed a mixed bag. I've heard he was quite regimental. Yeah, he was, yeah, yeah. But no, I didn't I didn't I didn't mind that in terms of uh, kind of, I think managers, as you get older, you, the better managers, the best managers, good people skills, I'm very good with people, different sorts of mm. people, just a nice manner to them, you know, can interact with people, all sorts of people, it's not uh, a problem. And he, he was never, I wouldn't say he was aloof or rude or anything like that, but he had that kind of the military background, didn't he, his kind of family and stuff, and, and regiment was probably a, a good war, but not to the point where I always felt to give everybody respect, even the, even the younger players, but well, obviously, maybe you felt there was a little bit of a distance there uh, between you. You know, it didn't maybe make it easy. Those conversations didn't exactly. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Exactly flow. But that was mm. okay, like, you know, because I, I, I felt as if I, I did respect him. And I tell you what he did surprise me on the training pitch. I don't know how old he was at the time, but I remember once doing some set pieces and they were trying to do a corner, right? And he wanted this corner 
where he wanted a corner taker to deliver it with the outside of his foot. <laughs> if you think about it, you don't see too many corners delivered. Uh-huh. Yet. I, I told you, I was leaving the game, I couldn't hit the ball with the outside of my foot. And he was asking our lads to, to deliver the ball into the T-shirt box there. And the lads like were struggling with it. And you know, on the, on the, on the practice ground, if, kind of, if it labours a little bit, a certain thing, it's too long. I guess we're pointing, this is too long, we need to kind of move on. And it got to the point where uh, Bruce went, right, give me a ball. And he, mar- <laughs> and he marched out to the corner flag on the out- and with the outside of his left foot and his right foot, because he was uh, two-footed as a player. Didn't see a lot of... Saw a bit of him play afterwards, funny enough. I remember talking to a few people who said, yeah, very good player, very two-foot, two good feet. And he swazzed those balls in, those corner kicks in with the outside of his right and his left foot. Now, he would have been... I would have been maybe mid-40, 40, mid-40s at the time. Mm-hmm. That gave me... I remember looking at... Even something like that, and you might think, oh, you don't get, you don't get respect for that, but... As football players, something like that, you do look at people and think, oof. Yeah, he's got a bit. Yeah, you get a little bit off players. It's not everything, don't get me wrong. The, the, the people skills are important as well. And maybe that's why maybe there's a, maybe a slight little bit of friction maybe between himself and, the, and a few players. But I, I, I was there. I enjoyed working with him. He loved the game, Dan. He absolutely loved it. A bit of a student in the game. Mm. Uh, had a lot of time for it. It wasn't a job. It wasn't an earner for him being a manager. It is with okay, someone. Yeah. He absolutely loved it. It was, um, it, I find it a bit of a fascinating time because I don't really remember it that well and now I'm finding out a bit more about it from players. But he, he had a good eye for a player as well. He made some good signings, didn't he? Alex Ray came into the club. Uh, Malcolm Allen uh, sort of came into the club around that time. Yeah. Uh, Paul Kerr, uh, Gavin McGuire. And he said, what are these characters like? Because you famously as well, you, we've heard a lot of stories of, of drinking. You famously didn't drink, but apparently you was still the last man standing. And a fucking good driver home as well. <laughs> I'm the last man standing because they demanded that I drive everybody home at the end of the night. <laughs> but he was too tired to pay for that taxi. Yeah, Ken, you come along. Yeah, come out. You bring your car in. Yeah, yeah, you can come. <laughs> I didn't clock that one about a year and a half in. Now, I enjoyed, to be honest with you, Dan, I wasn't out that much. My first year or two, I wasn't social. Well, I remember being in the gym palace one night, the old Ken era, probably my only time there. The lads would have dragged me out. And I, mem- I remember uh, going to the bar, just ordering a car, would have just coaxed, like, you know what I mean, whatever the lads would have been drinking. And the amount of times the lads would have spoiled me drinks became a bit of a, just a bit of a job. I can never understand it. I mean, I, I don't know if you can remember the first time you had a spirit, like a vodka or a Bacardi or whiskey or whatever it was. I mean, there is a difference. There's a significant difference there in the yeah. car. There. If well, two yeah. shots. <laughs> yeah. shots, even vodka in there, isn't it? <laughs> I'd, I'd go to me, leave me coke, I'd drink me coke, and straight away I'd be like, oh my God, that's, that's horrendous. Like, so the lads would be giggling in the, in the corner. So this was, the, this was a little, this is a bit of a thing, like, you know, I'll have a drink. And so I never did. And it wasn't a big thing, like, you know, oh, I don't agree with drinking or, you know, bloody hell, artists, you know what I mean? So it wasn't, it's just I wasn't around in Dublin. I didn't drink before I came over, and it wasn't a big thing for me. But I loved the lads, I enjoyed the company. Like I said, I wasn't the most outgoing, but when I did, and when I got you into it a little bit, the, and the lads were great company, like some great characters, great stories, you know. So I like being around them. So I'd be out, but not not too much. That Jim Palace, remember that night? Eventually, have all my cokes were lined up on the bar. It must have been about eight cokes. None of them were drunk. <laughs> no different spirits, and it was like vodka, vodka. Lads, no drinking. I said, no, that's vodka. That's Bacardi. I don't know what that is. <laughs> that one. I'd literally go through that the whole like. Everyone had been spiked. So that was, I tell you when I thought I cracked a funny other time that night, so I don't remember because I hadn't been to too many. 
I remember being dragged as well. It might have been the second year down to a night, a Zen's nightclub, it would have been. In a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember going in there and I walked there, Dan, and I thought, oh, I've absolutely cracked the hair. This is like, this could be the West End of London. I thought this was like, I'd never seen that like it. <laughs> the lad dragged me upstairs. Said, come on, come on, stay with us, stay with us. I was, yeah, 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 yeah. Dragged me up top, VIP section. Oh, lads, I'm not. Because I wouldn't have been in my dress at all at the time. Damn, you know what I mean? I, 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 clearly, I wouldn't have got admission by myself. So they dragged me into the VIP section. I never turned the corner and, like, literally had to give it a double take. Like, jacuzzi. Jacuzzi. <laughs> <laughs> and I could I literally couldn't process it. I couldn't process it for about like 20 seconds. I did a couple of people in there, and I'm literally looking at the lads, and they, they were like, what's the matter with us? Like, oh, my God. This. And I'd like to say I kind of went and got it, found myself in the jacuzzi, and like, clearly that didn't, that didn't happen. But, uh, yeah, I do remember thinking, wow, this is, this is, this is amazing. This is like a cracker, big story, like, you know what I mean? But they were like that would have been few and far between Dan in terms of me kind of on the on the on, on the Raz. Mm. But that said, anything out with the lads, a bit of golf, I would have picked up a bit of golf around that time, and and it would have been always been a few golfers in the camp. So you know, midweek we'd be out together and and that time. So any type of kind of uh, socialising around the club, but any any environment, I was kind of slowly I kind of came out Michelle a little bit during that time. That maybe two years under. Under Bruce, and you're right. The names that you mentioned in terms of that turnover of players, Alex was a big one. I said the Scottish connection to you. I mentioned it before, but Alex was probably the one the jewel in the crown. When I don't know much we paid, mm. for. bloody hell, down what a player! And he kind of suited me because Alex was a difficult player to pigeonhole. He, I wouldn't say he was an orthodox right sided midfield player in a four, probably more so of a central midfield player. In the modern game, you'd see him as an eight, like an advanced midfielder, two mm. number with a hold them player behind. But he was a great, two great feet. He was probably as good as I've played with Dan, being two foot. People say, oh, he's two footed, you know, left foot, right foot. And Alex was that ilk. But I've never seen somebody with a better shot from distance with two feet. He could hit as hard with his left foot as he could with his right. And I remember a goal he scored distinctly up in Pride Park. We played Derby in a league game up there. And he beats Peter Shells about 30 yards. I mean, a good 30, 35 yards down with his left foot. And he absolutely hammered it. Hammer and it was a so-called weaker foot. Now, fair play, Pierce Shin is about fourth yeah, <laughs> Couldn't get off the ground, like, but even still, that that for me was like, and as, <clears throat> as well as that, he was a very good footballer. So I played right back, and actually under Mick, Mick played a dime in the midfield for, right. for, for the majority of the season. And that was probably for me, probably Alex's best position because he played kind of right as centre. So he wasn't an out-and-out winger. He was more, and he was kind of more just left essential. So I meant I could do all this running for him because I had my legs then a little bit, a bit Forrest Gump, even with my curls. So I could, I, could, I could get myself on the overlap consistently and he could just find, he could pick me out, Alex, just slide me inside foot, ping it. So I was always a good option for him if he wanted to, to use me. So that kind of, that kind of dynamic uh, played well for us down. That's why I really enjoyed it because I actually enjoyed getting forward by that stage. I was having a bit of joy. I was getting a little bit better technically, kind of practiced me crossing a lot. So my cross had kind of improved. And even then confidence. Now you put a few crosses into the box, you get a few goals. Teddy was a great head of the ball. Uh, Teddy was still around uh, for a couple of years after. Then Chris Armstrong came into the football. club was a very good head of the ball. Yeah, and had at least one striker, really good attacking the ball, which helped, which kind of helped me. Dave Mitchell actually was another one who came in towards the death. That was a, Dave was a lovely head of the ball. 
Yeah, he was, and, yeah. Yeah, and he used to love me because he used to say, he used to love me. He used to say, Ken, don't overcomplicate it. You know, if you get, get your head up, just put it in the back, anywhere in the back post for me because he was very brave, Dave. So they, they kind of helped my game having, you know, lads were really good, head as a ball, very brave. So we kind of connected well in, uh, in that respect. But Alex, you're right. Alex played in that diamond and Malcolm as well. Played just behind the front too, didn't he? Yeah, he, yeah. Like, he no legs, Malcolm, in terms of running into channels, but brilliant with the ball, his feet, his back to goal, kind of linking things up. So Mick was very astute there. Mick, at, at some point during his career, Dan got his reputation, like very kind of pragmatic, regimental, a bit like your, uh, we're talking about there in terms of how his teams played, very kind of functional. But I, I always say to people, say, no, you got that wrong, because as a young manager at Millwall, Mick experimented, like, 4-4-2. Mick played three at the back. I played in the back three in, in Mick's teams, 3-5-2. The diamond shape we played for a year, that was very successful. So Mick obviously had a look at his players that he had available to him. And as all good managers do, it wasn't a case of, this is my style of play, this is how we're going to play. You have to put into it. It was a case of looking at the players which he inherited, Alex Ray, Malcolm Allen saying, well, what, what roles best suit these players? Right, yeah. On them because up front, he had good legs. John Gooden was still there. Chris Armstrong had come in, was great, great athlete. And he really, he, his game really polished up. He really improved on the Mick and the coaches who were there at the time. Put a lot of work in with Chris and he developed a very good uh, player. Jamie Morali, Jamie Makeway, as I remember, <laughs> Jamie Makeway and Johnny Goodboy. <laughs> what, why was I called that? <laughs> but Johnny Goodboy, because he, He's a good boy. He came from, but uh, 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 well, he came from nothing. He came from uh, Bromley, Bromley, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Free transfer. And Jamie Makeway was he, Jamie was a Makeway in the deal when Chris Armstrong went to Crystal Palace. They threw in Jamie, didn't they? So they would have had a running. Yeah, they had a running game together. Goody and Jamie would have played together. So I think it. They were fans, sharp eyes, weren't they? Johnny Goodboy and Jamie Makeway up front. And they had a great little. Jamie had a great run of games, actually, I remember, when he came to the club. Yeah. Well, he about 10 and 10. He went on a crazy goal streak when he came to the I remember him scoring over there. Actually, against West Ham, he got a couple of goals. But he had a great little... Uh, he had a, so that's what I'm saying. We, with legs up front, which you need, running the channels, that type of thing. Some really creative players in, be, in behind that. Alex and Malcolm, like you said. Andy May was at the club then, had been brought in. Yeah. The midfield position. Andy Roberts would come into that uh, position because those lads now were coming out of the U team. Andy Roberts, Ben Thatcher, Mark Kennedy, uh, Mark Beard, people like uh, people like that. Very Tony Dolby, very talented players were starting to knock on the door to force him, and that was great. And that was a time when I really began to develop a little bit of confidence, playing games, and not just playing games, Dan's, but making a contribution a bit. You know, feeling it wasn't just a case of oh, that six out of ten, I just done enough, got boy. You know, I was actually making a kind of maybe creating a couple of goals and defensively doing okay. So my confidence was growing a little bit. And those young lads were coming in. So it was a great dynamic. I really felt part. There wasn't too many players in the squad at that time where I thought, oh, now nice fellas, but I felt as if, oh, there's a bit of distance there. I'm not totally coming. He's a different generation, different mindset. Yeah. Age on the Mick that four season, I was really comfortable with the group, the players that had come in. The American boys came in at that stage as well. Uh, John. John Kerr, Casey Keller. Yeah, Casey, Bruce. Bruce wasn't Bruce Wayne, was it? Bruce Murray, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bruce Wayne, Jimmy, yeah. Bruce Murray. And they were lovely lads. Casey, great goalkeeper, obviously. Yeah, so the dynamic was really good. And I kind of started really enjoying it. It was a lovely time there from start to finish. Don't get me wrong. 
but that's when I really began to feel part of the performance. I was really kind of part of it. Started to thrive, started to thrive as well in your position. You said that, um, obviously, when Mick got, Mick got the job, you said that you really thought that you'd, you know, he invested in you by giving you that too. Do you remember when, because obviously under Rioc first season, we make the playoffs. Second season, we fall away. We lose 6-1 at Pompey and he gets sacked um, amidst a um, claim that it was a lot of player revolt started by Mick McCarthy. Do you remember the feeling in the dressing room at the time, like, Bruce has got to go sort of thing. Oh, yeah, I don't remember that, uh, to be honest with you. I'm not saying that wasn't the case. I just um, I just uh, don't remember it. Um, yeah, there must have been a dip. I don't remember how bad the drop-off was that uh, second season. That's 6-1, obviously. It was a bad result. But obviously, uh, results went great. I do remember a little bit. We'd lost our first-team coach. I'll tell you, we'd lost our first-team coach, Dan Steve Harrison. And I want to mention him and actually st- mix number two. Um, he was, supposed to, he was supposed to be mad, wasn't he? I no, he wasn't. He wasn't mad. No, there was a bit of madness to him, but it was kind of it was um, it, it was kind of not contrived. Like he was a great character, great personality. He was actually a comedian. He could, he could have. Oh, actually sorry, delivered. that's what I mean. Like John Goodman said, yeah. he was hilarious. Said he deliberately fall in likes and things like that just to make you laugh and stuff like. That. He was brilliant, but I tell you what, as well, he had a great side. He was a great coach, and all great coaches for me have those kind of. Almost man management, very good with people. You know, great with people, understand people, mindset of players. So Harry had that in Evans as well, but he was a little bit of the madness in him, Harry. But he was a great coach. He was a great coach. And I really benefited from him and Ian Evans at the club during that period. And that was under uh, Bruce originally. Yeah. Um, because they were great coaches and they invested a lot of time with the players and really traditional coaches, as I understood it. I didn't realise at the time, but looking back, the type of coaches I always felt I'd like to become because they great relationship uh, with players, understood players' uh, we, strengths and weaknesses, and were prepared to put the time in individual players to make them better. Their, their kind of mindset was, I'm a coach, it's my job to make this kid a better player. Come the end of the season, every one of these players need to be better. That's, that's my job. Yeah. And they went about that in that way. So I would have done a lot of work with the coaches one-to-one, Steve Harrison, uh, Ian Evans, right, bag of balls out on the training pitch. We need to work on this. Your left foot, positional sense, defend them one v one, all those type of things. And that was great. I loved that. It actually meant a lot to me because I was again a young pro. And these were like uh, Steve Harrison in particular, excellent reputation, but he was still prepared to put the arrows in with younger pros who really hadn't even made that step up. Didn't see them any, any different to the older pros. And I'll give you a good example. He would have spent time with me, but the one thing I distinctly remember, Harry, was our goalkeeper, um, Horney. Uh, you remember him in, in goal? Brian uh, Horn, yeah, yeah. Brian Horn. Brian was a great goalkeeper, great goalkeeper, but he was great with the ball at, at his feet. Actually, the modern game, Brian would have been better suited to the modern game today. Yeah. Keep expected, have the ball at their feet, ping the ball out. Not that ball nowadays, uh, uh, keepers expect to hit some full-backs about 40 yards on the touchline, you mm. know, fizzed over people's heads. Brian could do that like day in, day out. He was absolutely brilliant. But where he wasn't brilliant was in terms of uh, keeping away from the McDonald's driving. <laughs> he had this stand nav in his car. Every time his car came close to it, it just kind of immediately peeled off. Autopilot. <laughs> this was the standard joke, I think, with the lads. He did love his McDonald's and his fast food. He admitted it himself. So he had a bit of a weight issue. And the lads were... He's a great goalkeeper, but he carried a little bit. He was that... It was, it was that build, wasn't it? You could tell like, it was a constant struggle with him in terms of his way. He didn't have all the dietitians as they, they have today. So, Harry, Steve Harrison, I remember, was like, right, me and you, we're going to get you fit. I want you in here half eight every morning. Half eight every morning, 
every morning to get the weight off you. We're literally going to get the weight off you. So, as I said, I would have been in pretty early anyway, uh, uh, most days. So, I would have seen Harney would have been home, but he would have come in the car park. Harney would walk in, get, get dressed, black bin liner, put all his kit uh, over it, like uh, sweat tops to hold your bang, walk out, and Harry be waiting for him. Harry been in like a little pair of shorts uh, and a t shirt, because Harry would have been very fit even at that age, like whatever he was, 40, 45 years of age. Mm-hmm. Harney, let's go. So, after, around Avery Hill, they'd go. Every morning, I'd be, I'd be watching them go. Harry be really kind of dainty in his running and Harney just like dragging, literally kind of dragging his feet over the ground. But this was it. Every day, week in, week out. And I remember after about six, eight week period, a couple of months, and I remember like saying to Harney, he'd be sweat soaked through every day coming back home. Prefer to me, came in every morning and put himself through it. I remember one day he was coming through and I said, Harney, how is your, how is your weight, lad? How are you? Because I'd look at him and think, you haven't shifted anything, yeah? <laughs> Is that what you're speaking? <laughs> he's doing that. Yeah, I, but he, he must be losing weight because it's a sweat coming off him. Like, little did I know he was jumping his car afterwards and whatever. You know, sat, I was kicking again. But I remember, he used to, I remember him saying to me, yeah, he said, yeah, I'm, no, no, I'm two or three pounds now. And I used to say, was that this week? But no, since I've started two or three pounds, I'm, no, I'm, head, I'm, heading in the right, I'm heading in the right direction, right? And I used to look over at Harry, Steve Harrison, and Harry was quite slim to begin with. And I got to the stage where I used to say to lads, oh, I get worried about Harry. <laughs> Harry had lost about a stone and a half. I mean, he lost a stone and a half in weight. And he hadn't any weight to lose. And Harney was, <laughs> was like, you couldn't, you couldn't even see the way. And eventually it stopped because clearly Brian wasn't committing to the program. Working <laughs> hours. And Harry, I remember, and it was, I used to, the lads, eventually the lads used to laugh. You know, oh my God, Harry, Harry looks terrible. He looks gone. Holy, <laughs> don't look no different. Harry's nearly blown away in the breeze. Yeah. <laughs> the point was, he'd put that amount, that's the, that's what amount of time he invested in. Even himself, he put himself through because he thought, I want to benefit the player. And he did that with everybody over a long period of time. Um, Ian uh, Evans as well. And I love that. I, I love the fact they took time to spend that amount of time with me. And I really actually benefited from it. Helped me confidence, helped me game develop. And the reason why I mentioned it is I think Harry was shown the door maybe a couple of months before the end of the season, before uh, uh, Bruce Frick uh, got the sack. Mm. And that hurt, hurt a lot of the lads when he went because it was hugely popular. It was a bit of an innocuous thing why he went. It was, you know, it was nothing really. And it kind of hurt. So losing him, and he was a big bridge to the manager. So that bit of unease you were talking about between players and manager, he, he understood that, Hardy. He recognised that he was the bridge. He kept all the players sweet, kept his spirits uh, up and kept everybody on side, which all good coaches do. So I think the fact that he left uh, Tafsted on, but he kind of stepped away, I think that kind of hurt the atmosphere as well. So that probably contributed to it. Uh, so it was probably, I don't remember it too well, but for me, that was a big turning point. I was, I was, I was devastated, to be honest with you when actually Steve Harrison left the football club because I really enjoyed working with him. Well, um, yeah, actually, well, you ain't got to tell the story because John Goodman told the story very respectfully. It was it was funny. So John Goodman obviously has told the story why he left. Um, and he said, yeah, Mick McCarthy actually went round, wrote a letter, all you players signed it to try and get him back. But that sort of was the beginning of the end for Bruce. Just talk about not the incident, why he got sacked. As I said, we've covered that with John Goodman. But what other sort of things did he do? John Goodman said he'd just roll into lakes and stuff just for the... As good as his coaching was, he said he used to do just some funny stuff. He said he deliberately walked with a cup of tea and go, oh, mate, he'd spew it on you, but there's nothing in it. And 
just stuff like that is how it's going to do. Yeah, it's like slapstick. It's like, uh, it was like kind of John Cleese, Faulty Towers. It was that kind of classic British comedy. Seriously, it was. So we'd regularly walk into, we'd be in dinner in the hotel, an away game in the evening. And you'd, when we'd, we'd dine in the main area of the hotel, so there'd be people in there, families, people kind of well-dressed, couples and that. And we'd have a kind of corner in a restaurant. So Harry would kind of walk in. We'd all see him walk in. And there might be like a couple of, you know, a couple of little steps down as you come in into the restaurant. And he would literally throw himself throw himself down these steps, do, do like a little tumble, like knock over a vase. It was like Frank Spencer. It was literally walking, watching Frank Spencer. But of course, we'd be in on it. At that stage, we'd be in on it. We'd be kind of expecting it. But people around the restaurant, it was, it was, the, it was the expression on people's faces. People would jump up like, oh my God, are you okay? And, and he'd make a big thing. And the lads would be absolutely creased up. So it wouldn't be classic kind of one-liners, that type of thing. It'd be kind of more the slapstick stuff. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And into a lake and all, all this type of things, but yeah, they and it, it wasn't forced, it was in him, it was in his car, it was actually in him, like you know what I mean. He could have easily pushed it to the side and got on with things. The lads would have respected him, don't get me wrong. And it was always at the right time as well, because that's what I'm saying. He was very clever, Harry. Those type of things, it wasn't just the case of I feel like doing it, I'm gonna do it. It might be a moment, maybe felt as if players needed a lift or whatever else, just at the right time, then maybe the lads needed a little pick me up. Or a little icebreaker or something like that, you know, just to sort yeah, of... Yeah, exactly. So, so again, for me, even at a young age, I kind of recognised that. Uh, even kind of coaches, I was looking at them thinking, wow, what a, why, is he, why is he such a good, good coach? Yeah, he's a good understanding of the game. He's helped me technically in a lot of different things. But just in terms of how we engage with people, the time he gave uh, people, all those things for me were... Because people talk about good managers, have to... You've got to man- manage players as a manager. But for me, as the best coaches are exactly the same. I have to have the exact same um, attributes. In fact, more so because they spend more time with players. Some managers kind of diss themselves a bit. But the coach is on the training pitch every single day in the video room, wherever it is. You're spending a huge amount of time with the players. So that relationship, that dynamic is absolutely massive. So that was key for me. His presence, Steve Harrison, and Ian Evans as well, was very good to me at that time. Mm-hmm. Really key in my development at that time. You were saying um, about the Brian Hong situation where he was struggling to shift weight and that was the day before dietitians and all that. We discussed, obviously, you wasn't really a drinker, but I think it might be Malcolm Allen just said that all the boys said how hard you trained, first one out, last one in. But they said that you was ahead of the game, well ahead of the game in terms of your eating and you'd have little bits of tin foil in the dressing room and you'd be eating the right things and they'd be trying to get your tin foil and all that. So what what was that? Was that just a, a self-conscious thing or was you getting advised... Like almost ahead of the game in terms yeah, of like what football is now. Yeah, now the lads will be blowing smoke on me backside there a little bit. My diet would have been, I was in digs now for the first couple of years. So I would have been going to digs and dictating the landlady what she was saying you up for dinner. As, as you well know, every day you take, you take what you get. And there's like, and I would, I, I'd, I'd a very sweet tooth that, I'll be honest with you, and still have. You know, so I'd have regularly now, I'd, I'd uh, drift up to the uh, Sid Cup, Sid Cup High Street. On my way to train, and Mick actually caught me one morning. He was driving. He had a big mark. This was Mick had just signed for the football club. And uh, I'd gone into the bakery uh, on the high street on my way down to train, and reasonably early, uh, half eight. And I know that's sweet too. So it'll be like cream cakes. So now it wouldn't be, yeah. So I'd be little D, I'm giving Brian Hornstick, like, but I'd be detouring into the bakery, a little cream cake. So Mick caught me one morning walking down to the train, and I'd be getting cream puff. 
<laughs> and he made <laughs> and he made me jump in the car and he drove me about 200 yards down the road. He drove me. He was uh, giving me a bit of stick. Well, sorry, was this before he was manager then? Yeah, yeah, this was before he was manager. Yeah, I think he's he a player. Been, right, okay. So give you a bollock and even though he weren't the manager. Yeah, oh yeah. No, I wasn't giving you a bollock. I'm a bit of a laugh, to be honest with you. So, so I was, don't get me wrong. I wasn't like, I wasn't a nerd in terms of, you know, no sweets, no, no this and that. I, I really wasn't because I was quite uneducated, to be honest with you, like most of the lads. So I wouldn't say I was that different. Later on in my career, I'd get to the habit of, um, I didn't I don't remember doing it too often in Millwall. Maybe I did. But kind of after games, I didn't eat a lot. Say, for example, I didn't have pre-match meals uh, before games. A lot of lads have, well, nearly everybody have a pre-match meal at 12, half 12, chicken and beans, traditionally. You know, you have your breakfast, then chicken and beans at the hotel, then you go and play at three o'clock. But very quickly, I thought I couldn't function. I remember having chicken and beans and running out to the pitch, like for the warm up and literally like, you know, the food coming up, feeling in my stomach. Mm. So I just thought this doesn't work for me. So I, very early in my career, I, I skipped the kind of pre-match meal. So what worked for me was a big breakfast. So I'd get up and have fruit, uh, cereal. I'd have eggs, toast, pretty as, as much as I could, and even a bit of bacon, a sausage nuts or whatever. Is load up on breakfast, have no pre-match, and then uh, play the game. But afterwards, I was very hungry after the game, Dan, because I hadn't eaten for that prolonged period mm. of time. Now back in the day, there you'd be looking. You'd be lucky if you came in and there was like a toffee crisp like on the table, but in the way uh, dressing room, there was no big buffet out for players like pizzas or and that type of thing in the dressing yeah. room. That was it. You had a, a bottle of water, a few drinks, and whatever. So early in my career, I didn't realize it back in Millwall. I get the habit. I just make it. I make a sandwich and a, and a couple of bits, and just, yeah, just bring a little. Yeah, just a bit of grub in, in the back. <laughs> So after the game, when I sat down, I'd open me little, uh, I'd open me tinfoil, I'd have a sandwich. It wouldn't be a crisp sandwich, it wouldn't be, but just to get food inside me quickly, right. the reason. But well, I was going to explain as if you was like years ahead of the game. <laughs> you, had, you, had a bit, you had a bit of cheese and Branston pickle to go secretly. <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, I get stick, right? The first person who saw me actually cook, so I never cook growing up. And in the digs, I never cook, because the, the, the old girls used to give me Feel, but at some point I obviously stepped up, and I think it was the case that I passed it. So I never saw pasta growing up in Dublin. My man never, my man never served or said pasta spaghetti. No, what spaghetti was like uh, growing up in Dublin. We'd like potatoes every day of the week. I tell everyone we was like potatoes every day of the week, like chips, potatoes, stew. I mean, all sorts of like roast potatoes, boiled potatoes. It was like so pasta was like this was like pasta. This is a bit exotic. Like seeing the lads eat pasta, but very, but then again, I thought. But yeah, pasta, uh, carbohydrate, right, I'm getting this. So I made myself some pasta in the digs. Now, my first attempt at pasta, and I did it for a few years, was uh, mince out the butchers, chop a load of onions up, uh, tin of ragu uh, on top, mush it all up, right? So so then I used to think, it used to taste oh, it's a bit, bit bland, sweeten it up. So obviously, ketchup. Yeah. You know, so when I say literally a bottle of ketchup, I literally, the amount of ketchup I used to put in this pan, you, you wouldn't believe it. And it wasn't until I actually used to share it. I used to eat it all myself, just a pre-match man. Nobody would have it. It digs me out. So it wasn't until somebody came over, a family member, and actually sat down and ate this thing and literally spat it on the table. And said, what, what have you put in this? And I was like, well, just your normal bolognese. And they went, if you put any ketchup in there, when yeah, I put a bottle of ketchup in there, like regular. They were like, oh my, it's absolutely disgusting. So this idea of me being that precise and telling me diet, I'd actually say it's untrue. You get a bit more educated as I got a little bit older, but I was never, I was never 
even when I finished, Dan, I've always had that sweet tooth. And all, any lads I played, even at Birmingham and beyond that, will always say, when that dessert trolley, we used to hear that dessert trolley, that little tingle of the dessert trolley coming, <laughs> coming through the restaurant. In the, house, in, uh, in the cake. <laughs> I was just drawn to it. I was just, I was just drawn to it. So whether it was a, a cake or a jam, jam roly party, whatever it was, I'd be absolutely on it. Don't get me wrong. I, I improved as we all did as we mm. educated ourselves. But I wasn't any different. Every, all the lads were the same. But that's all it was, Dan, just education. Even when it comes to kind of um, weights, I spoke about I needed to get myself bigger and stronger. So it wasn't the case of me going, right, where's the strength and conditioning coach, lads? I need to have a meeting so I can get a program. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get in a WhatsApp group here and get some stuff loaded down. So was, lads had literally pointed to the gym. And the, the car, our gym was in the car park in Avery Hill, uh, Millwall. And basically it was, a, it was a shed on brick stilts. It was a power cabin. Just a yeah. square park, maybe 12 foot by 12. It's tiny, like just the steps quick. And it was the classic old multi-gym uh, in there. It's not a classic old multi-gym bench press, pull-downs, uh, one, le- <laughs> one leg machine <laughs> and something. So like four stations, just went around in circles for like about 40 minutes. So that was it. It was like, well, i got to get myself strong. Now, there's the gym. There's the gym's over there in the car park. So off I went. So you went in there, Dan, and you pushed as heavy a weight. You push and pull whatever was in there, threw around the gym, lifted as much as you can, done as many reps <laughs> as many reps as you could. In fact, I remember being in there one afternoon late again. Most players, most players would have gone. I was literally, I might have been, it might have been the fact that I was lifting weights for about a year and I hadn't put on like no muscle whatsoever. So I was literally like, kept pummeling and pummeling, thinking, Jesus, I'll see a muscle soon enough. But I was in there once on my own, and I put as heavy a weight on the pull down. Not those ones behind your neck. <laughs> Anyhow, it's the heaviest way I could think. I don't have three reps as much as I could. This gave me an extra yard of pace. And the thing snapped. <laughs> it snapped, right? So I literally pulled it down on my head. You know, I literally pulled away. So I cut, myself, I cut myself open. So I stumbled out the door. I remember stumbling down the steps. I was a little bit queasy. Most of were gone. There was no cars in the car park. Found <laughs> way. Literally found my way into the main building. There was nobody in there, and I was literally holding on to walls. But a blood was streaming down my face. Oh! Thankfully, I went into the physio's room, and Pete, the physio was there just packing up. He had a look at me rolled. He got no sympathy off Pete whatsoever. He was old school as well. He was like, "No chance of me getting off early today." So he brought, put a few stitches in, and wherever it was, my point was that was it. So that was for the first, I'd say, my whole uh, career at Millwall. That was it, Dan. I look back now and think the most of the time that not just me, we kind of wasted really. Not because we didn't want to work or we went, didn't want to put in the effort, but just put it into the, the wrong areas. Just yeah. didn't have information in terms of diet, physical conditioning. And I, if we had had that information, without a doubt, I could have definitely developed athletically better than I did. Because I was like, I, I was never the quickest. I, I always concentrated, as you normally would, on your upper body thinking, you know, I've got to make myself stronger, you know, chest, shoulders, the whole biceps, the whole shebang. But I, I never realised till about my, my late 20s, I started suffering a bit with my groins, that it was kind of your, your middle area really, like, you know what I mean, in terms of your core stability was massive. And until yeah. I found out about that in terms of strength and the core stability area of your body, that's where your strength comes from. That's where you plant your feet, nobody can move you, you know, even in terms of, like, speed and, I mean, but that didn't arise for about. I mean, in the meantime, we were literally slinging weights at each other. Got like Popeye. You just when we, when a winger turned up, he's just like, look at him, mate. You ain't getting past the. You ain't getting past these. 
that they push you over, you were top heavy. It was it was always explained to me, look, you're actually top heavy. If you think yeah. about it, all that weight out of top. He said, when somebody literally pushes you, you're literally, you know, they're literally just pushing you over. You've now like body strength in the bottom half of your body. And it took a while for that to drop before I could actually understand what was what we're talking about. And obviously adjust and do the kind of work that I needed. But we were all the same back then. We were all in fact, one thing that springs to mind is um, just to say pre-season. So my first year, I didn't have a pre-season my first year. So I went back to Dublin after that first season. We'd been relegated. And straight away, I got my new contract. But I knew, look, I've got to keep going here. I'm failing. I've got a couple of games. But I need to, you know, I can't. I'm going to get stronger. I need to get quicker. Rah, rah, rah. So I, was, I remember getting up the following morning after the season ended. They drove up to Hollyhead. And we had a little Nissan micro down. I think it was my first uh, car I got. Drove to Hollyhead from South London over. My dad, uh, my mum, dad met me and stuff. And the following morning, jumping out of bed, get my training kit on and running around my local park, doing a few laps, thinking, right, here we go. I've got to get going. So that mm. was it for the whole summer. It was kind of no break. I just thought, I've literally got to get myself going. And I remember coming back to pre-season, the first day of pre-season in, a- in Avery Hill. I remember, actually, I do remember being on the training pitch. It was like two weeks before training was due to start. All of a sudden, there was a, there was a kind of a main road. You probably wouldn't know it between New Eltham High Street. You used to come down to Sidcup. That's where the training ground was. All the cars used to come down. And I remember hearing this car. You could hear the tyres. Speeding down the hill. And literally, I mean, your head was drawn. All the lads literally like, looked to the side. This car was speeding down. It got to the entrance into the training ground. Screamed. <laughs> it was like Dukes of Hazard. It really was. On the two wheels down the ramp into the training ground and like a handbrake torn on, in the car park. And I remember thinking, Jesus, man, what's getting some robbery? I didn't know what was going on, robbery or something. The doors sprung open. All I saw was, first thing I saw was a pair of flip-flops coming out of the car, right? Bermuda shorts. Then it was, it was, I think it was Terry, then Terry Horlock's head came out. Followed by Keith Stevens and a couple of the other lads. They had literally screeched, landed from the airport <laughs> in that holiday. Taxi, straight take me to the training ground. Flip-flops and Bermuda shorts. Ron, I was got a rubber ring around him still. <laughs> and I remember looking at them thinking, this was like, it wasn't like, oh, this is outrageous. This, it was kind of, this, 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 these were the times, you know what I mean? Yeah, it just wasn't, it was what it was. Thinking, fair play. That was, it was like Hollywood. It was like Hollywood stuff. <laughs> was kind of, that was kind of what I aspired to in, in the back of my mind a little bit. And I was thinking to myself, what am I doing, you sad bastard? Like, you know what I mean? You spent the last, last six weeks, like, literally, can you come down for a game of golf? No, I've got to run around the park and doing a bit this and that. <laughs> and then arriving the way they did. But but that who, was it. Who got, sorry, who got out of the car? Who got, who, who got out of the car? Rhino, Terry? It was that lad, maybe Alan McCleary, that, that kind of group. Teddy, Teddy might well have been there. <laughs> Teddy would, I would imagine, would have been there as well. Teddy probably got a million dollars, to be fair, you know what I mean? We had about two hours sleep. And Teddy would have laughed me going around the train for January. He was that naturally fit. Anyway, Teddy. But that was it. That was the times, wasn't it? So we're talking about terms of diet, your kind of physical condition, and even how you looked after your body kind of pre-season, before you came back to pre-season, mm. in the off-season, like, you know what I mean? And I do think those players in a different type of environment, and that wasn't the case of those players having a bad attitude or being unprofessional, just like ignorant, really, like like I was, not mm. uneducated. And in a different type of environment, that, that, that kind of generation of players, Dan, 
definitely would have benefited significantly from the players today. That's for me. That's like obvious. That that's that. Yeah, that's it's not. Um, so I wasn't a player. I was a child. But the stories that all you players tell, it's, it was just the culture. Then it just was what it was. No one knew any different, did they? No, they didn't. But you know what? It's amazing, Dan. You you talk to players of that those generations, and even before that, and you you know maybe that drinking culture as well, which was around the place, which still would have been uh, prevalent to a certain extent those early years. When I play, but you say to them like, you know, would you swap? You know, would you swap it? You know, we could zap you, Doctor Who, take you into the modern era. You know, you know, travel your money, boom, boom, boom. But obviously, different environment. You know, you'd have to be a bit more professional. Things a bit more structured. And there hasn't been many of any players I've heard say, Do you know what, I take it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 